Job chapter 40. We're going to begin in verse 6. We're going to back up just for a few verses to get a, a running start. But as we do so, I wanted to ask you a question. How many of you like to be right? How many of you ever get, I won't say a heated, how about a spirited conversation and you like to win the conversation at the end with the points that you make? You know, some of you are raising a little, some of, my, some of you are really honest. Most of us, that's the way we live. Okay? And again, I learned the hard way, uh, I love to be right. And the Lord has blessed and cursed me with a quick wit. A little bit of sarcasm, and my family would laugh if I told you a little bit of sarcasm. And so when I get in those discussions, uh, I think quick, I say things that sometimes I wish I hadn't said later, and the Lord has to work on my heart, but I want to be the one at the end of the day who won the conversation. Job is in one of those discussions, one of those spirited conversations, but Job is in a conversation with the Almighty God. Nobody wins a spirited conversation against an almighty God. And Job is learning this slowly. In fact, after the whole message we looked at last week in Job 39 and 40, when God's telling Job who he is and how he worked, the fact that he established the whole order of creation and what we see, he cares for creation even today. At the end of all that, Job chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, Job says this, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? So Job's getting to the end of his debate with God. He's been asking for this debate for 30 chapters in the book. God begins to give him this opportunity. It's more of a one-sided than a two-sided debate. As God talks to Job, and at the end of it, Job begins, and I say begins, to feel where he ought to be. Because he says here, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. And I thought about that as I thought about some premarital counseling I had, some discussions I had, spirited discussions sometimes with my wife when we first got married, and I wanted to be right. How many husbands like to be right? You're looking for trouble, okay? But you're having a discussion with your wife, and you want to get the last word in. And wiser people than me kept telling me, just stop debating, let the thing go. You don't have to be right all the time. And I said, okay, but in the back of my mind, you know what I said? Yes, I do have to be right all the time. And in order to be right, you have to have the last word. If somebody else gets the last word in on your discussion, suddenly you feel like, oh, I've been one-upped. And here's Job answering the Almighty God. And he says, I'm realizing that I'm much smaller in my eyes than I thought I was. So I'll just lay my hand upon my mouth. But the problem was his mouth doesn't stop. Look at the next verse. He says, I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. What's Job basically saying? If you look back in chapter 33, he used this same kind of wording when he said, I've spoken once and I've spoken twice about the fact that I'm innocent and God needs to declare me innocent and explain himself on why he's taken away all that I have. And so Job looks and he says, I'm going to lay my hand on my mouth, but I already made my point and my point's right. And he stops. And that's why we have chapter 40. 
Because God's not done with Job yet. Job still has an issue that he's dealing with. He stands before God avowing his innocence and still, still feels like God has done him wrong. Now he's kind of getting the idea that God can do what he wants to do after going through chapter 39 and 40. But at the same time, Job looks and says, here we have this righteous God who is supposed to bless those who do right, and he's supposed to curse those who do evil, and I've been doing right, so why did God curse me? And he's back and forth trying to figure out why are things how they are. And God, I really wish you'd explain this to me, even though I'm going to stop talking, but I'm not. It's kind of under his breath, but an almighty God knows what we say under our breath. Or what we don't say, but it's been going through our minds all the time. And so God knows exactly where Job is. And he feels the impact of God's speech on him. Job was demanding things from God, and at the, end, at the beginning of verse 40, he quits demanding. But he still wants an answer. He's still not happy with where he is. And he's standing again before the power of God's presence. God is speak- He came in the whirlwind. The power of God's presence ought to impact all of our lives but not quite the way that Job has to be impacted. You see, we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to be sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. God's presence in your life will do one of two things. It will humble you, or it will help you. Which would you rather have? Job needed help. Job is looking and saying, God, help me, I don't understand. But Job was so proud, God had to start by saying, Job, what you need to do is be humbled. But God wants his presence to be helpful to us. That's why Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, to God's presence. Let us take our needs. Let us take our doubts. Let us take our fears to the throne of God. And it says, when we get there, we will receive mercy. What is mercy? Mercy's not getting what I deserve, okay? When, I, when I've crossed the line and I don't... Yeah, anybody ever received mercy when you were driving down the road and suddenly these lights lit up behind you? And they pull you... Sometimes you don't get mercy, okay? Sometimes you get justice. But they pull you over and what's the question they always ask? They know why. They, why did they pull you over? You were going 55, 60 in a 35 mile an hour zone. And the first thing they always ask you is, do you know how fast you were going? That's a trick question, Okay. If you say, I was going 60, you sure were. And they start writing out the ticket. Or you say, I don't know how fast I was going. Well, Sean, don't you think you should pay attention to that in a 35-mile-an-hour zone? You're in trouble if they're not happy. But sometimes you look at them and you just, you give them this pathetic look and you said, I was speeding. And you give them a pathetic excuse. And sometimes I guess we're so pathetic that they look and they say, don't be speeding when you're going through here. And they let you go. That's mercy. And when we come before God, sinners, in need of God's help, God says, come to my throne of grace because there you will find mercy. God's a merciful God. God has been telling Job that throughout this last chapter when he talks about the way that he deals with his creation. I am a compassionate and merciful God. And when we get to his presence, we want mercy. You don't want justice. If you get justice in God's presence, you get punished. 
We want mercy based on the blood of Christ. And not only that, but he says, and you will find grace to help in time of need. Job needed grace. My guess is there's times when all of us need grace. We need God's unmerited favor. Favor that we don't deserve. And so God's saying, come to my presence and get help. But if you come proud, if you come telling me how life ought to be, if you come complaining about the way life is for you, you're more likely to get humbled than helped. And so it's important to realize as we come into God's presence, it will make a difference. In Job's case, it's necessary for God to continue talking to Job in this next couple of verses because Job has not yet humbled himself. He started, he started down that road. He's taking maybe one or two steps, but he's not enthusiastically walking down the road of humility. And God's looking at Job and saying, if you don't humble yourself, you're in trouble. Job's already in trouble. He doesn't need any more trouble. And so God looks at him and says to Job, Job, you're in humility and forsaking your pride, this is what you need. And these next two chapter, this next chapter and a half is going to talk about Job's need. You need to submit yourself to my lordship. Submission. How many of you like the topic of submission? How many like to be told you need to submit? I've listened to some of you talk about some of the things the government wants you to do and you don't want to do it. I know where your submission lies. We don't like to be told what to do. And sometimes they tell us to do things, people tell us to do things we shouldn't have to do. And we don't like to be doing that. And Job right now is looking at God and saying, I don't like the road you set me on. I kind of liked it better when I had 10 kids, when I was rich, when I was powerful. And now here I am sitting on this dung heap of ashes And life's not so good anymore. And I don't want to be submissive to that. I want you to fix that. Why is submission so difficult for us when we look at an almighty God? I mean, let's be honest. There's a couple of things. Number one, we like to have our own way. Is that true or false? We all like to have our own way. Oh, no, I always know you don't. If you're given your choice, you like to have your own way. Not only that, but we like to feel like we're in control, don't we? When you go to the doctor and you haven't been feeling well and he does all these blood tests and the doctor looks at you and says, I hate to tell you this, but you have cancer. What are the reasons that that is such a problem in our lives? Well, we know what that means. It means suffering. It means treatment. But it also means what? I'm not in control. I don't know what's going to happen next. And we don't like to not be in control of things. We like to have our own way. We like to be in control. And a third reason is true submission might require me to change. Especially true submission to God. If we're truly submissive to God, what will that mean about my priorities? About my commitments? about how big a chunk of my life God really controls. How much of your life does God control? Some of you look at it, well, I'm here on Sunday morning. If an almighty God only has you for an hour on Sunday morning, you're in trouble. But some of us feel like we've done God a favor when we're here. God ought to have all of our life, everything. And that's the submission that God is pressing home to Job. Job, it's all mine. He's going to tell him that as we go through this this morning. Secondly, God's good. if I'm truly submissive, God is going to have control over all my commitments. I won't decide what to do constantly just because of what I like, but because of what I need. How much time do you spend with the Lord every week? 
If it's only an hour on Sunday morning, I wouldn't want to stand before an almighty God and say, I gave you an hour. Well, maybe I was kind of sidetracked for the first 15 minutes while Ben was giving uh, announcements. I gave you 45 minutes. Isn't that enough? Say, no, it's not enough. And God is teaching Job, you need to be committed to me whether you are on the top of the hill or whether you are on the bottom on the heap of ashes. What's your commitment level to me? And then another reason, I have my own goals and aspirations. And if I'm submissive to God, what would that do to my plans? Any of you have any plans for your life? Anybody have your plans changed? by circumstances, as God reaches into our lives and redirects. And we don't like things changed. We don't like things different. We like things to be in a routine. I mean, I've got a morning routine. I hate it when my morning routine gets messed up. I can't get where I'm going. I get all befuddled. And our lives become like that, and God's saying, are you submissive to me? Are you willing to let things happen the way I want them to happen? I have a routine for my week. I I shouldn't tell you this, but I come in on Monday morning because most people think it's my day off. I get more done on Monday morning than any other time during the week because nobody knows I'm here. And there's times when I come in on Monday morning and suddenly somebody catches me. Now my whole week's thrown off. Somebody sometimes catches me that's a divine appointment with God. God's given me with somebody. Are we willing to let God give us divine appointments that don't fit our normal schedule? Are we willing to let God change what we're doing, where we're going, how we're going there? We're planning a, a big hunting trip the next two and a half weeks, and I was studying this this morning, and I got on my knees and I prayed, God, don't change that, okay? You know, I'm kind of planning on going there, and I'm afraid to preach this, because then you're going to reach out with a divine appointment, and you might change that. But that's not the way we ought to be living. We ought to make our plans but say, God, here's my plans, but I'm open to wherever you want me to go. I'm open to whatever you want. That's what Job is really dealing with as he gets to the end of this. And and we need to understand, as God asks Job some very difficult questions over the next few minutes, that God is not just beating Job down. Has Job asked for a good beatdown? You know, you think about what Job's been doing over the last hour. He's looked at the Almighty God and said, I want to take you to court, God. I want you to answer to me for why you've treated me the way you've treated me. Because... The God I know doesn't do that. Can you imagine saying that to an almighty God? And Job's been doing that chapter after chapter. His friends would give him some nonsense that wasn't really true. And then Job would talk to God about it. God, you can't be doing this to me. You've got to answer me. You've got to let me know why this is all happening. I don't like the way life's going. And so, but God's not just giving Job a beating down in this chapter. By continuing to question Job... God is expressing his care for his servant. Because we're moving toward chapter 42. Chapter 42 of Job is one of the most exciting chapters in this whole book. I hope you don't miss it. It's going to be next week. But chapter 42 is where God brings everything together in Job's life to bring him where he needs to be. But when we get to chapter 40 and 41, Job's not quite there yet. So God is expressing his care by asking him tough questions over and over again to make Job reflect on where am I? Because too often we put our lives into autopilot and we just live the way we want to live and we forget that there's an almighty God to whom we have to answer. And so God's getting a hold of Job's attention here. He's seeking to overcome Job's resistance. Is Job resistant? If you're not shaking your head yes, you're going to have to go back and read chapters 4 through 30 again. And I know you don't want to do that. There's a lot of heavy stuff in those chapters. But Job is very resistant. Because he says he's innocent. Is Job innocent of what his friends accused him of? 
Did Job have all these things taken away because he was sinful? No, he did not. He is innocent. So God, why don't you just declare that for me? And God's like, I've got a plan for you. And Job is not answering to you for the way that I do things. And so here he is. God's going to overcome his resistance, but he's going to do it gently. He's going to do it persuasively, leading him into the place of submission where he needs to be. That's a gracious God. Does God have to deal with Job that way? He's going to talk about two creatures here today. Two creatures that I'm telling you, we're not going to get really sidetracked on them, okay? So if that's where you want to go, we'll have to do it another time. But he's going to talk about behemoth. He's going to talk about Leviathan. Two monstrous creatures, and his whole point is, these creatures cannot be controlled by you, but I do. I control them every day. So who do you think you are? Could God have just reached down and made Job become submissive? He could have, but he's not. Because in his love, he's leading Job along to what he needs to do. So two things in this speech, God's last speech to Job here. Number one, he's going to ask questions to Job about Job's own power and authority. Basically, in a very nice way, he's asking Job again like he did last week. Job, who do you think you are? Can you really back up those claims? You know, th- think about the, the, the little kid who's on the playground. And he's having to tussle with a kid that's a little bit bigger. And when I was a kid, at least, we used to say, oh, yeah, but my dad, you know, if my dad gets with your dad, he's going to beat the tarot out of your dad, you know. And, and, we, I mean, all these, and my dad may have been five foot nothing. And may have not even been able to lift 100 pounds, but that other kid wasn't going to know. Now, my dad wasn't, but the other kid wasn't going to know that. And so he's making all these assertions that he can't back up. And God's looking at Job and saying, Job, that's what you've been doing for 30 chapters. You're making assertions that you can't back up before an almighty God. So let's get yourself where you belong so that I can take you where you need to be. And then he's going to give portraits, two portraits of foreboding beasts. And again, we're going to talk about those as we go through Behemoth and Leviathan and why God does that. But he's going to start with Job's pride. He's going to start with Job's pride and he's going to say in verse 6, Then the Lord answered Job, dealing with these pride issues. He answered Job out of the whirlwind again, and he says, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Sound familiar? Two chapters ago, he said, you know, it's time to get ready for battle. It's time for you to dress like a man. It's time for you to stand up and address an almighty God for who he is, for what he does, and you're going to have to take it. And so here he comes to Job again. So here it is, because number in verse 8, this is what he says. This is what Job has been applying, implying all along. This is what Elihu tries to convince Job of, and I'm not sure he totally succeeded until God comes and underlines it again. He says in verse 8, Will you put me, even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? He looks at Job and said, Job, if you're complaining about what an almighty God is doing in your life, you're saying, God did it wrong. Does God do anything wrong? Does it feel like God may be doing something wrong in your life at times? But Job doesn't say, God, it feels like you're doing wrong. Job has crossed the line by now, and he looks at the almighty God, and he said, God, you're doing me wrong. And God looks at Job and says, if you really believe that, will you condemn me that you might be in the right? Again, he's already taken Job through all these questions. Job, where, where were you when I created the world? Well, Lord, I wasn't there. Where were you when I set the seasons in place and, and dawn and dusk and how everything works and, and science that you don't even understand with, with all of the animals and creation? And where were you as I compassionately hold it all together and make it all work? And Job stands there with his mouth hanging open and yet he's still not ready 
to not condemn God that he might be right. Because Job is sure he's right. And the problem is Job's half right. It wasn't because of his sin that he got where he got, but he's in trouble with God because of the sin that happened after he got what he got. The attitude that he had toward God, the accusations that he's made. And this is the first time I think that anybody's really going to hit this because God is about to deal with Job's pride. Look at verse 9. Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? He looks at Job and says, do you think you have the same status as I do? My arm reaches out and it is never weak. Wouldn't that be nice if that was our case? I found out what 60 years does to you this week. I was going out to be a gentleman. I was going to be the knight in shining armor. Thursday morning, we had ordered an air conditioning unit for upstairs. And the the FedEx driver brought it in. Now, I always thought as a kid, the FedEx driver is a strapping man who picks up these things. Well, this FedEx driver drives this van down our driveway. If you've been to see our driveway, it's at quite an angle. And did not get to the flat part of the driveway. And jumped out. And she was a little lady about five foot tall. And she walks to the back of that van. And she pops it open. And I'm looking out the window. And I thought, hmm, that could be interesting. It was. About four or five very large boxes started sliding out the back of the van. And here she is trying to hold these boxes. The air conditioning is coming out from behind her. She's trying to hold that. So I ran out and I was going to be the hero. I ran out there and as that air conditioner sliding by her, I reached out. I just picked it up. I thought, I'll take care of that. Forgetting that air conditioners weigh more than five pounds. I, I, I took it off for, for the, probably because of pride. I took it off for the message, but I've been wearing a brace for the last couple of days because my, my wrist hurts. Because I wasn't as strong as I thought I was. Now we got all the packages back in. The air conditioner didn't fall on the ground. Everything worked out except my wrist. But it happened because I thought I was stronger than I was. And God's looking at Job and saying, Job, are you sure you don't think you're stronger and more important than you really are? Because you're talking about an almighty God. And you're talking about a God who is mighty in his voice. Whose voice thunders and the idea is, when I speak, it puts fear into the heart of my servants. Is that who you are, Job? And Job begins thinking as he's going through that. And then he gets to verse 10 and said, If that's who you think you are, verse 10, Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Who is adorned with majesty, dignity, glory, and splendor? Ezra read part of it for us this morning from from Psalm 93. That's the Almighty God. And God is looking at Job and in his evaluation of who Job is and where he is, he says, can you adorn yourself to look like the Almighty God? Because that's what you sound like. You sound like your plan ought to be the one that's being carried out. And he goes on and he says, you've got to look the part, but you've also got to do what you think needs to be done. Now, what has Job been complaining about for 30 chapters? I'm innocent and God didn't bless me. God took things away from me. There's wicked people around here, and God's supposed to take stuff away from the wicked people and judge them, and God, you're not doing that. And look what God says in verse 11. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. God looks at Job and says, okay, Job, if you're going to be God, then do what you said you want me to do. I want you to go bring all those wicked people and to bring them down low. Humble them. I want you to take everything away from them. To the point of verse 13, go ahead and just bury them. And Job is looking, and does Job have the ability to do that? Job can't do any of those things. And God's trying to bring Job again to the point where he will humble himself and say, only God can do those things. 
And God says this in verse 14. Then will I acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. He's looking at Job and said, Job, if you can do this, then you don't need me. You could take care of things without me. Now, does Job believe he doesn't need God? No, he's been, he's been appealing to God for 30 chapters. He knows he needs God, but he wants God to do what? God, do my bidding right now, okay? I, I've got a great idea for you. If you'll just take it and do it, it'll help everything to work more smoothly. And God's been trying to tell Job it doesn't work that way. God already has a plan. God knows what he's doing. God hasn't gotten himself into trouble. You ever think you know what you're doing and get yourself in trouble on things? I've told you this before, and I won't get into any specifics, but that's what car mechanics does for me. It humbles me. I watch, I watch Google, and I'm like, I can do that. And I, usually I can take it apart if it'll come apart. But then I've got to put it back together. And times have come where I thought, I don't know how to do that. And that's where God is trying to bring Job, saying, you think you know what's going on, but in the midst of life, I have a plan that carries everything through. And it's not your plan. And you need to get on my page. You don't need to ask me to be on yours. And too often, that's what our prayer life is all about. It's asking God to get on our page, to do things the way we need them to be done, the way we want them to be done. And God's looking at Job and saying, if you can do that, you don't need me. And then he goes to two very, very interesting pictures. Two foreboding beasts. Now, there's two or three chapters in the book of Job that people love to go to. Most people don't wade through chapters 3 through 37, 38 like we did, trying to get out what's really there, because it's heavy. It's a lot of poetry, and you've got to figure things out. But now, they love to go to these two, pay, these two chapters, because there's two foreboding beasts, and a lot of people will tell you, here are descriptions of the dinosaurs. I told you they were in the Bible. And you know what I'm going to tell you? Maybe. God put these here so that we could talk about prehistoric. No, he didn't. And the problem is, if we get lost and go down that rabbit trail, we're going to miss something very important that God's trying to teach Job and that he's trying to teach you and me. God brings these beasts into picture. God describes these beasts for a very specific purpose. And so as we go through that, we need to find out what his purpose is. Because his purpose in describing these beasts to Job is to take somebody who's still struggling with submission to the lordship of God in his life and say, Job, you need to submit to me. And then life will go back to what it needs to be. It might not go back to what you want it to be, but it'll go back to what it needs to be. And you can stop all this agonizing. And so he's doing this. He's laying bare the pride that underlies Job's defense of being innocent. Job was struggling with pride. He said, well, he was innocent. He was trying to stand. Well, as he tried to stand up for himself, he got so proud, he stepped across the line to make himself almost like God. And God said, you can't do that. That's a dangerous place to be. And so he brings these beasts in. And again, the, the identification of these beasts is disputed. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but it's not the important thing. What God's trying to teach Job is, Job, if you could rule the world in justice, start by showing us how you can have authority over these two big beasts. And his whole point is, you can't. Only God can control beasts this massive and with this kind of power and these kind of things. So he's demonstrating to Job with a direct confrontation that his course is fraught with danger and defeat. He's not going to end up where he wants to be. Somehow Job thought he would come out on top of all this. 
He kept saying, God, if you'd only take me into the court of law, you're obviously going to see that I'm innocent. And you're going to tell people how wonderful I am and how innocent I am and set everything back in order and everything will be okay. And God's looking and saying, Job, what you need more than that is to humble yourself before an almighty God and say, God, whatever you bring into my life, I'm okay with that. Are you okay with that? You know, it's easy to give mental assent to that. Even with the shock of what happened initially to Job, Job was okay with that at first. You know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. I'm not sure I could say that after losing all my kids. And God took all of his kids in one fell swoop. And Job said, God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he meant it. Because we give mental assent to what God ought to be doing in our lives all the time. But does it reach down into the depths of your soul? Or do you change your mind later? Because that's what happened to Job. Job said, God, you can send me anywhere, but not there. You can do anything you want with me, but not that. And as soon as we say but, then our submission to an almighty God is in question. And it can be over things that, you know, Lord, you know this has been my dream for a lifetime. How could you take that away from me? How could you change my life in one fell swoop? Did Job's life change in one fell swoop? What did God expect from Job? Submission and blessing God's name. And again, Satan attacks him, and Job is successful, but the circumstances of life drag him down later because they weren't exactly what he wanted. So he begins talking to him about these beasts in his mercy and in his grace. He wants to bring Job to the point where Job will say, you know what, it's not about me. I need to humble myself and trust in Almighty God to lead me wherever. And that's the key, wherever he wants to lead me, to do in my life whatever he wants to do. And so here he comes with these two beasts. The first beast that he talks about is in chapter 40, verse 15. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and the power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, limbs like bars of iron. So the question is, what was behemoth? Doesn't it sound pretty formidable? I mean, look at what God says after he talks about him eating grass. His strength is in his loins, his power in the muscles of his belly. His tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. This beast is powerful. This beast is somebody you don't mess with. You don't go bow hunting against this beast. This beast is going to get the best of you. And so all of this is going on here. And God looks and he says, Job, think about this for a moment. Think about behemoth. The thing is, what is he? In the Hebrew, the word for behemoth literally means beasts, more than one. And the, the idea is probably the fact that this beast is so formidable, it's looking about the power, the might. The fact that this beast does what this beast wants to do. You know, have you seen some of the videos, and they're not near as bad as this beast would have been, but you've seen the, the videos of bears that are getting into people's cars? I laughed the other day because I was reading an article on a bear that got in the back of a Krispy Kreme truck. Did you see that? <laughs> Guy, guy's in a safe place. He pulls into an army base. I think it was army. It was an armed forces base of some kind where he makes deliveries every day. And he rolls his, his truck right up to where he has to deliver some of the donuts. And he takes the donuts out and he leaves the back of his door open. And mama and child crawled into the back of Krispy Kreme donut truck. And they decided that they liked donut holes. And they decided that they liked the donuts. You know what the driver did? 
He sent the owner of the little shop out there that got to, to, to chase the bear away. And the owner bangs on the side of the truck, and I'm reading the article, and the bears didn't pay any attention. Bears don't need to pay attention when we ask them to leave the donuts alone. They're formidable, and they didn't mess, and then they went and got the whole base there. And you know what the brave soldiers, now they didn't want to kill it, so you know what the soldiers did? They got these horns, and they're blowing these loud horns to annoy the bears, so finally the bears, when they were done eating and had, a, had their fill of donut holes and donuts, they moseyed on away, and, and you ever have a bear look at you kind of disgusted? You know, I chased one off, I didn't chase him, I yelled at him from the window, I was very brave. I yelled at him from the window when he was drinking all our bird feeder a couple of years ago, and when the bear had finally had enough, it looked at me, but it had this look on its face like, who do you think you are? And then slowly went down the deck and left, it walked away, and this is what these bears look like there, and that's the idea that God's trying to give Job, who do you think you are? You can't control this beast. I control this beast, but you can't control this beast. Now, whether it's a brontosaurus or a hippopotamus or an elephant, what it is isn't nearly as important as why God's talking about it. Why is God bringing it in? It's because he's trying to teach Job a lesson. There's things in life that you can't control, but I can. And so Job is thinking about all this as he thinks about this beast, and God asks him questions. He goes on and on with this beast. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? And he looks at at Job and he says, can you take this beast? Can you take him on? And Job wasn't any more ready to take that beast on than that driver was to take on that mama bear and her cub that were eating all his donuts in the back of his van. I'll bet he doesn't leave his van open anymore when he delivers. But you look at this and God says to Job, what can you do? And Job doesn't answer yet. So verse chapter 41 we have chapter 41, I believe, because not only is Behemoth part of what we're told, told about, but Leviathan's there because Job's heart's not quite where it needs to be yet. Job's struggling with it. Job's getting the message, I think, but it's not quite there. It's interesting when you look at chapter 40, how many verses are there about Behemoth? There's only about 10 verses about this magnificent creature. That's kind of why we have trouble identifying him. Now he gets to this other creature called Leviathan, a sea creature, a massive sea creature. And again, some think it's a marine dinosaur, or others a whale, a dolphin, a crocodile, a huge crocodile is part of it. I don't know what he was. It's not the what, it's the why. But as God goes through this section of it, 34 verses he goes through describing Leviathan, when it's not even important if we figure out who he is. So why did God do that? Because God in his grace and mercy is working on the heart of his servant. And God is going to tell Job about Leviathan until his heart gets to where it needs to be to be right with God. And I looked at that verse, and I thought about that for a bit in my own life. I said, God, don't let me make you go on and on and on to get my attention. Help me to get it the first time. Could Job have gotten the point with chapters 40 and been done with it? Sure he could have. But pride's a tough thing. We don't want to be wrong. Even before God, we don't want to be wrong. And so Job is still learning, and Job is working on this. But this chapter really isn't about Leviathan. Now, it's fascinating if you take the time to study him, and we won't today. We're almost done with him. But it's a fascinating creature. Sometimes maybe we'll do some Bible study on some of these creatures. But this isn't about Leviathan. This isn't about dinosaurs or crocodiles. This is about Job. And God's saying, Job, you can't stay there. You can't stay on the ash heap. 
You can't sit there and be depressed for the rest of your life because God didn't work the way you wanted him to work. You can't just let life pass you by. There's things that I have for you to do. There's a plan that I have for you. And it's time to get up and face the fact that you need to be submissive before an almighty God. You need to be willing to let him do whatever he needs to do in order to bring you wherever he needs to bring you because God is in control of all these things. And so here he goes working on some of these things, telling him about this beast, and then he gets to chapter 41 and verse 10. This is the point he's making. In fact, back up to verse 8. As he's doing this, he looks at Job and he says, you know what? You lay hands on this beast, Leviathan. You try to take on more, bite off more than you can chew. And I love the way he puts it. It's very eloquent. You will not do it again. Why does he tell him that? Because Job's taking on an almighty God. He said, Job, if you're going to fight against me and think you're going to win, it's going to be disastrous in your life. And I'm telling you, you won't do it again. So be in submission. Do what I'm asking you to do. Follow what I need you to do. And he goes on to very explicitly explain to him what's going on beginning in verse 10. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. He's looking at this Leviathan and said, you know what, people want to just lie quietly. Don't mess with him. You know, don't wake him. Let him be. And then he looks and he says, as we think about that, who is he then who can stand before me? Can you stand before an almighty God and tell him why he's wrong because your life hasn't turned out the way you want it? Or maybe your life's not going the way you want it to go today. God's saying, I have a plan. Trust my plan. Don't trust your plan. Don't trust your schemes. Don't trust your wisdom. And God looks at Job and he says, who can stand before me? And I've talked to you about the fact that I've got this huge behemoth and I control him and you can't. And now there's this Leviathan in the sea and he's a huge creature and nobody can control him. You don't go fishing for this guy. And he says, you can't control him, but I can. So Job, who can stand before me? And then in case Job hasn't gotten the message in his pride, he says in verse 11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? You see, Job thought God owed him something. Do we ever get like that? Now, now to be honest, if you're a Christian trying to live for the Lord, what do you expect? We like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You know, God's going to make me healthy, wealthy, and wise, and take care of all my needs. And God didn't promise that life would work like that. He promised to lead and guide us if we would follow him. But he didn't promise everything would always be wonderful. And Job's looking at God and saying, God, because I was a man who was blameless, and he was. I was a man who feared you, and he was. At the end of the day, Job said, God, you owe me something. And God's looking and saying, whoever gave me anything that I need to repay him, I don't owe you a debt. I don't owe you anything. In fact, what Job has forgotten is the fact that The fact that Job had anything at all wasn't because he deserved it. It was God's grace. The fact that God took it wasn't because Job did something wrong. And the idea that Job is having pressed into his heart here by God is at the end of verse 11. He said, I don't owe anybody anything, and here's the end of the verse. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Not Job's. Not yours. Not mine. It's God's. And again, that's one of those principles that we like to give lip service to. Everything belongs to God. My house is God's until my house is falling apart. My car is God's until God takes it away. 
My, and we, finish, we fill in the blank. You know, it's all God's. Sometimes my boat and my, my camper and all the things I do to not be at church when I should be there, they're God's. And God's saying, no, they're not. What if he takes them away? And, and God's looking at Job and saying, Job, you need to realize that it's all mine. Did Job realize that? Again, think about what Job lost. All of his wealth. His whole, his whole household, all of his kids, all of his prestige, all of his power, all of that went away. And Job looked and said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Job knew it here, but Job didn't feel it here. Truth will change your life when you let it hit here. When you can look at God and say, God, it is all yours. My family's yours. Do with them what you think needs to be. That's not easy. That was easier for me before I had kids. Now you look and say, God, you need to take care of my kids. Now do what you want, but don't do too much. You know, don't call my kids away to the mission field on me. I can't go visit them. And you're like, God, why would you do that? We've got to have everybody home at Christmas. No, we don't. God, don't, don't send them back to Buffalo. That, that, that's the most God-forsaken territory in the world. It snows all winter there. And two of my kids moved back there. Like, you were supposed to keep them all together, God. No, that's not God's plan. God's going to use that family wherever he sees. Are you willing to let him do that? Are you willing to let him move you around? Now, I, I was careful. Again, I, I sat in my office. I said, God, God don't, don't move me from Hendersonville. Now, I'm not telling you what to do, but I kind of like it here. You know, don't move me on someplace. Huh? But if God decides to move me back to Buffalo, New York, or worse yet, Wisconsin or Minnesota, or someplace even colder over the winter, would I go? Does God have that much control over our lives? God's like, it's all mine. You're mine. Your stuff is mine. Your schedule is mine. Your health is mine. Are we willing to let him do what he wants to do with it? That's where Job is coming to the end of all this as God looks at him and works with him. And then we get this awesome picture. We're not going to take the time. But take the time to read through chapter 41, verses 12 through 32 sometime and see what this huge creature is doing. Because this creature with all his magnificence, God comes to the end of it and basically says, there's no match for him anywhere on earth. Verse 33 of 40, chapter 41, on earth there's not one like this creature, a creature without fear. Can you imagine no fear of anything? That God looks at this creature and says, there's no fear in this creature. Why? Nobody could touch this thing except for me. And then he goes on and he says, on earth there's none like him. And, and, he looks, and he looks at Job, and as we finish this chapter, verse 34, he sees everything that is high. He's a king over all the sons of pride. You know what God does? God looks and says, you know what, Job? Leviathan would be better off taking care of the wicked and leading the way things need to be led than you. He's fearful of no one. He's guided by me. Job, where are you? Now, that's how I would have finished it. Look at verse, verse 41, chapter 41, verse 34. God says, on earth there's none like this creature, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is on high. He is king over all the sons of pride, period, end of discussion. God, why did you stop so abruptly? Because Job is going to get it in chapter 42. God has finished because he can see Job's heart. And next week we're going to look at what does Job do with this? What's this book here for? What is this book supposed to teach us about ourselves, about God, about the way God works, and about God's plan, and more importantly, about the fact that everything belongs to him? Next week, we're going to jump into that because it's the thing that makes all the difference in Job's life at the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the end of this book, and Lord, for a look at two magnificent creatures, and though it's hard to even determine what they are, and 
where they are, if they're even here anymore, they've gone extinct. Lord, they were there for your purpose, and Job knew who they were. Job knew what they were because it has an impact on Job's heart like nothing else as the wisdom of the Almighty God reaches down in grace, in mercy, and in compassion into a servant's heart and turns it back to you. God, I pray that you'll do the same for us. Lord, take the things that are in our head and drive them deep into our heart. May we not only realize who you are and acknowledge you, but Lord, may we live our lives in such a way that it proves that we've gotten the point. For it's in Christ's name we pray.